you all just take a moment to just feel sorry for these guys on this table here? And um, I had no idea they would be in the front row to this extent. Hey guys, good to see you. <laughs> um, this is uh, purposely not, not slick. <laughs> but uh, we're going to do a few sessions that Steph's uh, going to take us through. And we're asking three questions over those sessions. The first question is, what is? What's the current reality? Okay? Really important question. Then later on it will be, what could be? Which is like an imagining the future. And sometimes we do both of those questions. But we're actually going to do a third question, which is, what will be? Not just what could be. What hundred ideas can you come up with? What thousand things has God filled your moleskin notebook with? What are you going to do? Does that make sense? What will be? But we've got two days to get there. So glad you said that, Daniel, because I'd forgotten that element. So it's great. Um, so what is, is going to be uh, today. We're going to do two sessions on that today. And then uh, there will be two sessions tomorrow. The first of which will be what could be. And the second of which what will be. Does that make sense? And so after the uh, conference in June that we had, the Courage Conference, we're going to stick, as we've been heard earlier, with this theme of courage and really look to work with the Lord and allow the Lord to work in us this um, growing characteristic of courage among us individually and as a family of churches. That is what, um, that is what we will be doing. And particularly at this gathering, we're going to be focusing on courage in character. Now, at the end of the day, everything in life is joined up. So, for example, if we looked at courage in community or courage on mission later, it all touches one another. I know that. But this is more in terms of emphasis, say. The emphasis will be courage in character, courage in terms of who we internally are and, and what goes on inside of us will be the emphasis of this session. I want to start with a couple of scriptures. Um, John 4 and John 7 says this, Jesus speaking, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And then John 7, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If he who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. And by this, he spoke of the spirit whom those who who believed in him were to receive. And the main point I want to start with here, just to help us orientate around an understanding of life in the spirit, kingdom life, is that it should have something of a flow about it. That, that when we are, when we first come to know the Lord and He baptizes us in His Spirit, this living water isn't simply just poured on us from above, but we are immersed in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And from that point onwards, uh, a spring is established inside of us, out of which flows the presence of God. And so the idea is, is that there is something of a flow about life in the Spirit, the full uh, Christian life. It's a sovereign work. It's something that God does. It's so, so it's not like we have to make something flow. It's what the Lord does. He sets inside of us a spring that wells up. That is the work of God. That's not something that we have to do, which is very encouraging. It takes the pressure off. 
It's what God does. It's a supernatural thing that happens through his work. And yet, when we come across exhortations in the New Testament like don't grieve the Spirit and don't quench the Spirit, what becomes clear is that we, through our own um, attitudes or actions, we can cause a hindrance to the flow of what God is doing by his Spirit. We can, if you like, block up the well. And we have numbers of um, stories throughout the Bible of blocked up wells, which seem to have like a spiritual meaning about them. We can, we can clog things up by sinful attitudes. We can clog things up and hinder the flow, the full flow of God's life through us, through, through various things. Um, there are at times rocks that need removing. And I want us to keep that idea of removing the rocks in our mind as we work through these couple of days, um, because it will become... Um, when we get to the point of what will be an application tomorrow afternoon, then that, that image will really come into its own. But I want us to live in the reality of, of this idea biblically. Now we know that life in the spirit is a life of courage because life in the spirit is really just the formation of, of, the, of Jesus fully in us and Jesus was utterly courageous. And so life in the spirit is about a lot more than warm feelings in meetings. It is about the character of Jesus Christ being dynamically formed in us and expressed through us. And Jesus himself obviously gives us a model of utter courage. I mean, Jesus jeopardized the things that many of us hesitate to in order to live obediently. I'll give you a few examples. Jesus angered the establishment. We're told in Matthew 12 verse 14 that the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. He angered the establishment, not for the sake of it, but because he recognized within the establishment were things that were rotten to the core. And his calling in terms of obedience to the Father required of him to say certain things and not to simply keep quiet. He jeopardized an easy life to that extent. He disappointed his family takes a lot of courage because he loved his family. If you don't love your family, it doesn't take courage to to disappoint them. If you do, it does. We're told in Mark uh, chapter 3, there's a scenario where Jesus is teaching. He's surrounded by many people, so much so that his family can't get to him. Now, it seems to be this is around the start of his ministry. I'm imagining at this point, they still feel that they have some kind of claim on him beyond what they now actually do because of God's, the Father's calling on his life. And they, so they send this message, we're outside. The assumption being, we're here. We expect you to come now, straight away. So the message comes to Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. Jesus' response, who are my mother and brothers? And looking around, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Ouch. Ouch. That's a big moment right there. Jesus is realigning relationships so that he can obey the Father. He's realigning things. It takes immense courage to do that. He's at that point jeopardizing a lot on a natural level. Jesus silenced the experts. The experts would try and catch him out with their questions and they would try and trap him. And these were ultra-educated, highly sophisticated people. And we're told that after his answers, we're told they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. He, 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 rather than being intimidated by the sophisticated, by the intellectuals, by the, by the people with all the knowledge of the day and going quiet... 
he spoke out and he silenced them. Final example, Jesus forsook home comforts. When people wanted to follow him, sometimes he said things like this to them. The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was homeless certain periods of his ministry. Now, he jeopardized those things we often hesitate to out of obedience to the Father. Now, part of discipleship, part of growing, part of maturing is learning a new culture. The Bible says we are now citizens of heaven. That's where our citizenship is. Philippians 3, verse 20. And so we must learn heaven's culture. Well, what is heaven's culture? Well, heaven's culture is set by the king of heaven, Jesus. And so we know for sure that part of heaven's culture is courage. Here's my definition of courage from a Christian perspective. I've defined it in this way. It is the spirit-empowered alignment of deep internal conviction and clear external speech, lifestyle and relationships so that who we appear to be reflects who we truly are in Christ. That there's an alignment of who we truly are in Jesus, who he has made us to be and the way that we're living. That is courage, I believe. I think we'd all agree that Jesus personified this. It's where we're not living conflicted lives, where we're not just saying things just to keep that person happy. Just doing things just to, just to appease that, but there's no conviction about it. Where, we're, where we spend our lives cornered and controlled by other people's expectations. Rather than living from that place of conviction. And the things we say we really believe them. That's courage. Maybe a couple of comments on our culture in the Western world. Just to give a little bit of context to the challenge that we're facing. The Bible says the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. 1 John 5 verse 19. And it's implied in Romans 12 that the world is attempting to squeeze us into its mould. And uh, I would say that the culture of our part of the world, particularly at the moment, is one of uh, um, growing political intimidation. Where we are told what to think. We are told what to say. We are told what to celebrate. We are told what to condemn. And we're told to do so with such underlying threat that many people don't even get to work out what their true convictions are, let alone live them out. Because you're constantly being told what you can and cannot think, what you can and cannot believe. The rules are very, very clear in the secular West, aren't they? That's the context. It works against courage in a very powerful way. You don't even get to think through, what do I really believe? You're too scared to even do that. And then if you do that and you realize, oh gosh, <laughs> what I believe is very, very different from what I'm supposed to believe, then the fear really kicks in. How do I express this? How can I be honest about this? How can I be courageous about who I truly am and what I truly believe? How do we reject that culture, that element of our culture, and be transformed as we hear about in Romans 12? Verse 2. Well, I'll end with this and then we'll model a little mini conversation for you. How does the renewal of the mind happen? Well, first you must be born again. 
We must be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then we have this secret weapon, which we might want to call beholding or, or mirroring. 2 Corinthians 3 says, To this day, when, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. He's talking about unbelieving Jews. A veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And we all, with unveiled face, mirroring the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And so our mind is renewed by, by turning to the Lord. As we look on him, as we gaze on him, something happens, you become, you become, you turn into the image of that which you worship. You come into the image of that which you are constantly looking at. And so as we read scripture, we're beholding the Lord. Something's happening. Transforming from glory to glory. As we read it, looking for Jesus. As we pray, and some of those things that were referred to earlier, praying, Lord, search my heart. We're looking to him. We're worshipping him. Our eyes are on him. We're changed from one degree of glory to another. And then as we take action, as we, as we then live in the light of what we are seeing in Jesus, this is God's means of grace to us. Now, for the talk after the break, I'm going to focus on the flip side of courage. I'm going to focus on timidity. Unpack what that is and, and, and how that works. But for now, I want us to stick to the positive 